0: Welcome to Our Six Society, a podcast series where researchers from King's College London and people with lived experience explore together
1: how social factors contribute
0: to mental health problems. I'm Lavinia. I'm Charlotte. I'm Sally. And I'm Gemma. And we'll all be bringing you episodes but we'll also have some guest presenters inviting people who tell us their stories to investigate the issues that they're interested in, as well as the ones that we think are important. We want to make you think and
2: question society's role in mental health. What are the systems and the structures which mean some people are more likely to be mentally unwell than others?
0: And crucially, what steps should society take? From national government policies to local
2: grassroots community organising? How can we cure our sick society? Hi, I'm Charlotte Woodhead, lecturer in society and mental health at the ESRC Centre for Society and Mental Health at King's College London. Welcome back to our Sick Society podcast. Black Thrive is one of the centre's key partners. It is itself a partnership between communities, statutory, voluntary and private sector organisations who work together to reduce inequality and injustices experienced by black people in mental health services. This episode brings you a recent online conversation about race, unemployment and mental health between several members of Black Thrive and Dr. Sarah Dorrington from King's College London. It was originally planned as a 20 minute episode, but after listening back to the recording, we wanted to be able to share the whole discussion with you. For a chance to reflect, we've broken the episode into three sections. First, we'll hear the discussion about how Britain's long history of systemic and institutional racism continues to affect how all of us think and live today how COVID has highlighted how this impacts on racial inequalities in health and the importance of documenting experiences both within and across Black communities. Next, we'll hear more about research and evidence from South East London related to inequalities in employment opportunities and sickness absence and Black Thrive's work on employment and long-term health conditions. Last, we'll hear about how research can perpetuate racial inequalities and what panel members think needs to happen to prevent this. Before we start, I just wanted to forewarn you that as we recorded during social distancing measures, our panel were talking remotely and unfortunately the audio quality is a bit muffled for a couple of the speakers. To start, here are the panel members introducing themselves.
3: Thanks Charlotte, I'm Layla. I currently volunteer for Lambeth Black Thrive, but in the past I've worked in local government and been responsible for employment support in the borough that was in Islington and I've also worked for NHS England looking at mental health and employment and learning disability and employment and also worked for the Department for Education looking at apprenticeships for disabled people.
4: My name is Celestine Okoroji, I am the programme and partnerships manager at Black5 for the employment project uh, I'm also a postdoctoral fellow at the London School of Economics.
0: Hi, I'm Catherine Crawford. I'm involved in that flight because I have a son who has a psychosis diagnosis for the last 15 years. So we've been through that entire mental health system. And in my other life, I co-direct an organisation called um, Sporting Recovery and we provide opportunities for people like my son who are isolated or even retirees to him to improve their physical and mental activity through sport. So it's an opportunity for reducing social isolation. But I've also got a background in the voluntary sector um, in the 80s and 90s, with young single mm-hmm. homeless people. And later on in my career as uh, senior management in um, local authority on um, commissioning and procurement of supported housing primarily, but um, contracts with the, the third sector.
1: Hi, um, my name is Jansman and I am the Employment Project Support Officer at Black Thrive. I guess my background has mostly been in social enterprise and social entrepreneurship. I run um, my own social enterprise, um, helping young people get involved in arts and culture, both as in terms of education, but also in terms of kind of well-being and the benefits that that can have on, on a young person's life.
5: Hi, um, I'm Sarah Dorrington and I work uh, as a psychiatrist and psychotherapist in South London. I've been working in South London for around 10 years now. I'm also a PhD student at King's College London and I've just submitted a PhD on work and health in London.
2: So I'm going to go around and ask some questions. And my next question starts with the um, sort of the rather obvious statement that racial inequalities have a very long history in this country and are shaped by a systematic discrimination and oppression. So one thing that we've been hearing a bit more around recently is this term systemic or structural racism. And I wondered, what does systemic or structural racism mean for you?
1: I guess I can jump in here. I feel like for me, structural or systemic racism means that the structures and systems across society as a whole have been actively, I guess, built to advantage white people, which in turn disadvantages communities of colour, people of colour, black people. And I think we see that across, well, I would say all of the systems and structures in society, from education to housing, employment, health, justice, that all of those weren't built to kind of include or advantage people of colour. So therefore we have this system of inequality where white people get preferential treatment in expense of black and brown people in society. Maybe that differs from individual racist acts because systemic or structural racism operates on a wider societal level and potentially can be invisible to some people unless they are uh, ready and willing to name it. It can often go as kind of invisible structures of oppression. I
4: don't know if people agree. I thought that was a great analysis. <laughs> I, um, I, I tend not to use the words systemic and structural together ever, partly because they they almost seem to intentionally obfuscate the problem because they sound exactly the same. So <laughs> that, that's part, But I mean, that's academics for you. Everyone's got to make up a new word. So in place of systemic, I tend to use institutional. I I, I kind of hark uh, back to Stokely Kyle Michael or Kwame Ture to think about Institutional racism being the racism that impacts upon people through the policies, procedures, systems of an individual organisation. So you might say the police are institutionally racist, which is the same thing as saying the police are systemically racist. Right. So those two words to me are the same. When I say structural racism, I'm then talking about the interplay of all of these different organisations. Okay, so when we see that Black people are disproportionately found in the criminal justice system, that's not just because the police are institutionally racist. It's also because of the education system, employment, and then the police all working together in a way that creates a situation where you tend to find Black men in particular disproportionately. Inside prisons. But I think Yasmin's point is also really, really crucial, which is the reason why we talk about institutional and structural racism is because oftentimes, even today, even in kind of anti racist discourse, we're often talking about individual people's dislike for black people, which for me is somewhat irrelevant. So, you know, if one individual white person dislikes me because I am black, it's kind of like, and so. You know, my life is not going to be massively impacted because one individual white person dislikes black people. But if it is the case that if I interact with the police, for example, my treatment is going to be extremely different um, to someone else's treatment, then that becomes much more problematic.
3: Yeah, it's interesting because when Celestine started off by saying institutional racism, I was thinking, actually, I've tended to move away from that precisely because of what you said in your second part about structural racism. So, I think that the the whole definition in this country, following the MacPherson inquiry into Stephen Lawrence's uh, murder, the focus on institutional racism was right in relation to the police, I and mean, there's institutional racism in terms of schools, education, um in terms of the health and so on. But I think the key thing is the combination of those different institutions, which is what Celestine was saying in his the second part. And I think that, One of the challenges of the definition of institutional racism that came through then, following from Macpherson, was that it kind of located the racism in one institution, even though it didn't necessarily intend to. And so some of the softer institutions and structures were let off the hook So what happened, I think, is that the focus on structural for me is more important because it kind of goes across all of the institutions. And it also addresses what I would say is the mindset of people. So it speaks to the softer aspects of human perceptions, interactions and behaviours, as well as the kind of hard institutional aspects.
0: I'd, I'd agree with that. Because I think what, the other thing about my like person and institutional racism is as is, is if, oh, we've done that, we've sorted that one. And so it's almost, you actually need a new language to say, no, we haven't sorted it yet. This is very present and we need to address it. Because I, I was, I think I started off agreeing on the institutional racism. I'm very familiar with that, but it does feel like we've done it and we, and we haven't. So I think the new language, but as long as everyone understands it, I personally have a real struggle thinking, you know, what do people mean by that? I know what I think, but which is why this conversation is really helpful um, to start off, is having some common understanding of what we mean. And so I think I'm on the same page as Leila now with the structural, making, including everybody, um, particularly powerful institutions, as well as
1: the ones. It's really interesting when you say, when you talk about like the fact that people say we've done it, because all of these structures are historic, they're historically racist, and I think there's a real reluctance for these institutions to look at the history of where they've come from that will inform where they are right now and I think until we or they are prepared to do that and really look at the education system, who was it built by, who was it built for, and how does that inform the education system that we have today? I think there is like a reticence to to move forward and it's going to be hard to say, oh, we've done it or we've ticked it off because people are not prepared to look at Britain's colonial history, to look at the slave trade that happened in Britain, to look at these kind of... And there's a denial surrounding some of these, these truths of our country and the institutions that rose up from the history of our country. And I think until people are prepared to name those incidences were kind of not going to be moving forward at the speed and pace that probably all of us in this podcast want us to move forward on, which I think is really shameful, really.
0: There's a really good example of that. I don't know if you heard where... Uh, the national, national trust of all organisations are doing the underbelly um, of the history yeah. around capitalism. Yeah. When I heard the item in the morning, I thought, okay, let's wait for the backlash. By the yeah. end of the day, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. it absolutely came with people saying they jumped on the bandwagon. they're they just they stating some history yeah. and facts and, and, and in front it's, of
1: us. It's the and simplification and, of it, isn't it? It's like Churchill was a was a great man. It, but he was also a racist, right? So like Churchill could have done great things and saved us from, from in the war, but he also killed loads of Indians. So it's like you, you, those two things can coexist. Someone can do good things and also do bad things that like we don't need this kind of oversimplification of the fight of good versus the, the, the evil, you know, that things can coexist and people can, there's duality that people can have more than one kind of aspects to who they are, but by ignoring a massive part of of what is our history, then we just can't move forward.
3: Yeah. And I'm quite interested in this, the the thing about the impact of all of that on our minds and not just on the minds of white people, but on the minds of black people. And we'll, that's partly for me, what impacts the whole mental health situation? Because we are, the structures also affects the structures of our mind, the structures of our thinking, the structures of our, of our behaviours, and without us even realising the extent to which it does for all people, not just white people, so that we are all so impacted, it's sort of baked in and we don't even, we're not sufficiently conscious of it, I guess.
2: Brilliant, thank you. So so the next question I wanted to say is, so you've talked about how this systemic or structural or institutional racism is something that's so ingrained and embedded in the way that our society is set up that You know, it's almost like a kind of invisible but really visible sort of pattern, sort of, you know, sort of way of being that we're all socialized in, that we're all influenced by. And then I suppose there are things that happened that bring this to light more than others. And I guess COVID is one of those things. How how do you think that COVID has sharpened our focus on the impact of these really structural differences and inequalities on black people? Um, and how, how has that really fundamentally caused differences in risk?
3: The whole question of why would Black people be more likely to get and or die from COVID, I think, I'm not sure that the answer to that question is known fully, but one of the questions which I've not seen answered and other people might have seen answered is, why would it be different in, for example, in African countries? Why would the impact of covid operate differently. So a lot of people I think would tend to try and jump on a the thought of there's something inherent and I'm not saying there isn't but there is something around even the questions that we ask. And there was an article in the Guardian about the question of are your lips blue. I don't know if people saw that as a as a the 111 call caller asking are your lips blue and that that question in itself i'm not saying it you know it just doesn't quite work as for a black person's diagnosis and there are, that is prevalent across the whole of the nhs there are all kinds of diagnoses and things where do you have pink spots or rashes pink red blots or whatever so even the fact that built into the diagnosis system is based on a white model and often a male one as well but i think the other thing that is clear is that poor people tend to die are more likely to have negative impacts of covid and so on and so there's something around the combination of race and racism the, the medical system and the way it thinks of us questions of and draws conclusions and there might be other factors that are simply not even considered because it's a, it's a particular Um, Black and Asian and minority ethnic problem. And then the poverty. So the fact that people who are more poorer are more likely to have health, significantly more likely to have health inequalities and pre-existing health conditions. So I think COVID shines this harsh light on the inequalities that have always been there and literally have always led to people dying earlier because of their race or their socioeconomic status, the fact that they might be poorer. It's always been there. But I think Covid has shone a harsh light on that in a way that probably people haven't seen before.
0: I think there's possibly another factor in my view is it could possibly be that issue of um, black people going to seeking help later. And particularly around um, when the the almost hysteria that was building up about um, access to care and the health service and ventilators just before the lockdown and certainly in my own experience, my son, who doesn't live with me, but um, lives in a hospital, not housing, and they hadn't quite got their act together around the hygiene and the prompting and all of that. So I, I made the calculation that if my son became unwell, I wouldn't be able to see him because he'd be isolated. I didn't have 100% trust in the people who were caring for him because there'd been a lot of change recently. And I thought, now where is he going to be in the hierarchy? if He ends up in hospital. He's got a long-term mental health diagnosis The blackmail. Is he going to be in line for the next ventilator? Now, that might be completely unfair on, on the mental health system, but my, my thinking, I was thinking, where is he going to be? In, you know, I'm not there to advocate for him. He's going to be on his own. I, I'm not putting my son, I'm not prepared to do that. So I brought him back home for the first seven weeks of the lockdown, um, uh, although it was really difficult, really stressing. But the issue of trust and whether he would be get equal treatment and for me, it was a major
1: risk. I completely agree. I think we've seen massive mistrust and sometimes fear of the systems, like the healthcare system, of the government, and this question of, you know, the messages that have been sent, are they being received? And is that based on who is sending these messages? So if the if the community itself was educating itself, but because it's come top down from the government and a lot of people do not trust this government, the government or politicians in general, I think that's also created... I don't know, I, sense, I agree with you, Catherine, this this mistrust of, of the, the people who are supposed to kind of be protecting us and their capacity to handle the pandemic in general. I think as well, there's this sense of discrimination in general being a social determinant of, of someone's health and existing if you exist within a society, within a structure, system that oppresses you you will have an increased likelihood that your outcomes from that structure system will be poor. We see that in health, employment, education, as we talked about earlier, accessing services, trusting these services when you're in them. Yeah, I agree that it's shone a harsh light. I guess in terms of the effects of COVID on black people specifically, there's health, but then there's also the fact that we're in the biggest recession ever on record um, and the impact that that will have on people's jobs. I guess we already know that black people are more likely to be unemployed than white people and they're more likely to have to occupy positions that might be more precarious or low-paid positions in general so or even dangerous work like the kind of less meaningful employment and kind of yeah the impacts that the that coronavirus is going to have on people's job prospects I think will be felt particularly harshly within the poorest most poverty-stricken communities
5: Yeah, I totally agree. And I I think linked to what Yasmin said, I suppose it's it's kind of obvious, but a lot of people can work from home and protect themselves in that way. And I think because the black community are more likely to be in frontline jobs, low paid work, precarious work, they're they're in situations where they're at much higher risk of infection and it's much harder to protect themselves. And I think also linked to what's been said around the impact of structural racism um, on health we know that the Black community have a higher risk of long-term conditions. So in Lambeth, the, the working age population, I think overall about 35% of people have a long-term condition. But In the Black community, that goes up to about 50% of people. And in the Black Caribbean population within that Black community, it's even higher than that. So we know that comorbidity and long-term conditions, in combination with COVID, put people at particularly high risk of, of mortality. So there's all these factors that come together to increase people's risk. Thanks, Sarah.
2: So you touched on uh, a couple of points. So I want to pick up more on what you were saying about work and employment in a minute. But before I do, Sarah, you touched on the point that there are differences within Black communities. And and something that we often notice is that people who are, you know, not white, inverted commas, often get lumped together in as BAME or Black, Asian and minority ethnic communities In this episode, we are specifically talking about black people's experiences, but obviously it's important to acknowledge differences in experiences within and across black communities. And I wonder if you could say something around why you think that is particularly important and why that's often missed.
1: I think it's laziness. I think using BAME, BME, I don't know, I find it quite infuriating personally. I think it's this presumption that there's a one size fits all for anyone that isn't white and that white is seen as the default and It's othering. I don't know any black person, Asian person, anyone who would identify as BAME or BME. I don't know. I don't think it speaks to us as individuals. I think it tells us that, you know, we're just all lumped together and it's not a particularly holistic approach to to care if we're talking in in health terms. It, It it kind of is telling you that we don't care about you as an individual. We're gonna to me, I think it's a really, really lazy approach, like really short-sighted lazy approach. And um, I don't know what other, if what others think, but I find it really infuriating when I see the term BAME and BME, particularly in research and in in I think Celestine and I have have done have spoken about this, I guess, previously in depth, some of the research we've been doing, how frustrating, how frustrating it's been. I,
4: I would definitely agree with you about laziness, particularly a kind of strange form of kind of intellectual laziness as well, because black and asian are not even the same kind of category black is a is a racial group and asian well it's a continent but it's pre, it's it's used as a kind of national identity so it's kind of like these these categories don't actually fit together anyway but but it is important i think to to recognize the differences within so called black groups partly because particularly in the uk there's obviously an issue of how long or how many generations a group has been in this country. So we can think to African Caribbean communities, particularly uh, Jamaican communities who've been here kind of since the wind rush. There's a newer kind of waves of immigration from Africa. And then you have all of the other black diasporic groups. So from South America, North America and so on. And all of these groups will face different kinds of challenges. Some may be around language. Some may be around social networks and various other challenges which are masked once we say all of these people are exactly the same. There is a solidarity that comes with Blackness. We all experience something in relation to our Blackness, right, which is essentially racism. So we experience racism on account of our Blackness. At the same time, there are differences and kind of tectonics between different Black groups that it's important to recognise if we really wish to create change for those groups so so yeah i, I yeah I, I really do think it's important to take a kind of intersectional view about black communities um and particularly the, the nations and nationalities that they might be coming from
3: i don't actually have a problem particularly with bame do you know i'm so sure <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> not particularly, because i i think that there are different things going on and i think there is a actually a usefulness of having a some term and it doesn't have to be bame or bme or people of color or whatever but i think there is a there is something about non-whiteness does create common experiences and it doesn't mean that the experiences are the same so i think that there are common experiences arising from not being the predominant and the uh, uh, white race culture whatever though of course Celestine is totally right about the fact that we're not they're not the same thing so we're, when we say black and asian they're not the same but there is something and i think there is A usefulness about some term that actually recognizes the discrimination that is faced as a result of the difference and that is common to people who have got a different color of skin or a different culture and that there is discrimination regardless of how you subdivide that group and I think that there is a value in a term that create some kind of solidarity. And I, when I'm old now, so when I was young, there was a whole load of, we used to say black and mean the whole everybody. But then people didn't feel comfortable with that and couldn't quite identify with it as time went on. But there was a time when black meant BAME as what we call BAME today. Until today, you'll have um, Southall black sisters, if you've ever heard of them, are a predominantly Asian group of, of women but they still call themselves Southall Black sisters. And that harks from their origin when, in those days, when Black was a political term, it was not a description of a race. And I think that there is some value in that in terms of the common experiences and the solidarity. But I also think that that shouldn't be, a la- therefore, a lazy option for some kind of h- homogenous classification of all experiences. So that even within Black... Even if you say African in terms of, to me, not people of African origin, but people who are contemporarily, their parents are recently are from Africa, the differences between North Africa, South Africa, East Africa, West Africa, and even within them, are as greater as the differences between a black person and white person often. The differences in the Caribbean communities, between the different Caribbean islands and different parts of South America and so on, are significant. So... I don't think that having a term that is encompassing should preclude the rigor and thoughtfulness of understanding the nuances between the different communities. Because so for example, in the UK, if you look at the experience of people who are, are African, recent Africans, let me say African to mean people, not people since time began, but Africans and Caribbeans, is completely different, both in terms of education and employment. And you have to understand, and by seeing those differences, you then begin to ask different questions about why would it be that you would have such high educational attainment and better employment prospects amongst people of African origin than of Caribbean origin, for example. And you can't understand the racism and the history and the history of what's happened really without actually seeing and unpicking the effects today. And I know that people are not always keen to do that, but I think it is so blatantly obvious that there are these differences, that you have to do that. But I think at the same time, I do feel, as somebody of African origin, I do feel a solidarity with people who are from the Caribbean. I do feel a solidarity with people who are from India or, or Bangladesh or anywhere else, or the Middle East. And so I also want to retain that.
1: On that point, it's a question really, because I don't know the answer. Is there a difference between political blackness when people kind of subscribe to political blackness as encompassing of black people, Asian people? Was that not a term that came from the bottom bottom up as in the group, it was like a grassroots term that the black community, i.e. the politically black community decided to name itself, whereas BAME, and I don't know if I'm correct in saying this, feels like something that has been labelled on us rather than something that, a movement. It's. I, I'd, I'd, I don't know the origins of BAME or BME as a term, but it feels like it's more of a top-down term that like people are calling us BAME, whereas before people were calling themselves Black, as in politically Black. I don't know if anyone knows where, where BAME or BME, what the origins came from.
4: I think BAME is a policy
1: term. Yeah, exactly. So, so it feels like BAME is something that's kind of been put onto us as a label, whereas political Blackness came from Radical feminism came from black feminist groups, black women's group, black solidarity groups. So maybe the origins of the two terms are different. I don't don't know, because I really don't feel affiliated to the term BAME or BME, because I see it more as a, as like, uh, as you say, Celestine, like a policy space or uh, the academic space, if you're reading a paper rather than in a grassroots, rootsy kind of term. I don't know. Yeah,
0: it's really complicated. and I totally hear what Leila's saying because I'm kind of from the same era or probably even a bit further back than you, Leila. <laughs> um, but I've, I've got the, and I think that it, in some ways the question is not necessarily what we're called, but how do we prevent, as soon as you give it a name, being lumped in together? Because I totally agree with the, the you know, black and monologics, I don't work for comes from either. But it does, it does at least try to say there's a number of different people under that heading. But what with Jasmine, um, with you, you know, what really, really I can't cope with when people say vain, because I think that if you can't be bothered to actually say the words because mm-hmm. it's like four words mm-hmm. and you just do vain, mm-hmm. I just find that really, it just exacerbates the fact that it's invisible. It's just a couple of letters mean something and nothing yeah. underneath. So I think it's for. Um, people who are thinking about it, thinking, how do we prevent it being just this lump? Because as you know, as they've just really eloquently explained, there's lots of differences between and within people. And it was ever thus, but the issue of solidarity also is really important. So, how, what, what do we do to stop this um, whatever word we might call it or group? Just being seen as this lump, this you know group of people with no second thought, and I think what the other point illustrates the fact we're just in this lump is this lack of data. You know, they're supposed to be collecting data on these group of people, but, but when you ask for the data, it isn't there. It isn't, and if it's there, it's not broken down into the to give us the detail we need. To be able to tell the difference as to whether it's somebody who's you know recently, uh, currently you know from Africa or Caribbean or South America, it just doesn't give us information to do individual responses
4: to people's needs. I think somehow this goes back to Yasmine's earlier point about complexity. I, I take Leila's point about political blackness actually, and I and I'm I do quite like Steve Beacle. <laughs> and I do think that there is a, ve- a usefulness in having solidarity between different peoples who face similar kinds of oppression. I think one of the problems with the backlash around Bain is also partly because there are a lot of organisations that could potentially produce a report that tells you that actually they're very ethnically diverse and actually, you know, 50% of all senior managers are being. But the lived experience of that is often that, and still none of those people are Black, which is where some kind of a need for some sense of differentiation comes from for, for me
1: at least it feels like and i think this maybe connects with what you're saying catherine around like people who say bame instead of saying black asian mi- minority ethnic it that it feels like it's a softer term that like saying bame or bme it, i feel like in in my perception of how we talk about race in the uk is that people don't like naming things for what they are that people would rather say oh, have you heard about George Floyd rather than have you heard about institutional racism, white supremacy, police brutality? Like there's some harsher words that people don't feel comfortable saying. And then there's these kind of softer other words that people can say, oh, yeah, well, you know, we, I sp- we've I we got this BAME group or like you said, 50 percent of our, our senior leadership team are, are BAME because and it kind of masks what we're really talking about I don't know that's how sometimes I feel that when we talk about race in in the UK that we are and it goes back to that point of facing up to your history and and looking backwards and and really looking at where we've come from that people don't want to do that they'd rather take the 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 easier the softer route yeah I agree that I, I don't like that yeah the term particularly
2: okay thank you for taking the time to to go through that Before we we started to touch on some differences in Black people's experiences of employment and within that unemployment and what we call economic inactivity, so so not working due for sickness reasons and other reasons. From your work and your experience, can you say any more about what you've seen in terms of the nature and extent of inequalities in these domains that are experienced by Black communities?
3: (laughs) Go Sarah!
5: (laughs) Well I was just I suppose the work I've been doing has been looking at sickness absence in Lambeth, which I guess is a sort of meeting point of health and employment and and welfare that point at which people go off sick. Um, and we know that long-term sickness absence has got really damaging consequences for for people and their families, and at leads to social exclusion, worse health outcomes and financial, worse financial outcomes and financial insecurity. So in the work that I've done in Lambeth, i found that people in Black communities are at higher risk of sickness absence than white groups. Um, and within the Black community, I, I looked at three different groups, Black Caribbean group, Black African group, and the Black other group, which, of course, is a big groups come together and there's huge amounts of variation within them but still i found differences between those groups as well and I found that the Black Caribbean group was at the highest risk of sickness absence and that was even after taking into account the fact that that group has a higher prevalence of long-term conditions so there's other stuff going on that's putting this group at higher risk of of sickness absence and I guess we know that the Black Caribbean group is also at highest risk of being in precarious work and low-paid work so they're actually more likely to become dependent on welfare and they're less likely to have financial resources to support them and their families during sickness absence. So I guess the findings from the, the work I've been doing suggest that the situation that back Caribbean groups are in results in financial stress, which then makes it more difficult to take time off, which they would need for recovery when unwell. That we know that there are problems in accessing healthcare as well. Um, And that this combination of these things can worsen health and occupational outcomes for this group in particular, Um, although it's true across the whole, the black community generally. So it's a major area that needs more attention and more work. And I think one of the things is about kind of drilling down and understanding what's going on within these communities and getting more rich information about people's experiences. Because the work I've been doing is use GP records. So I'm very much like looking from this big zoomed out perspective
3: so so what Sarah, was there a big difference between the groups or was it a bit of a difference? Was it a significant difference between the groups?
5: Yeah, yeah, the Black Caribbean group. I mean the Black group, the Black community as a whole, were at the high higher risk of sickness absence, but the Black Caribbean group really stood out in terms of high risk of sickness absence, but also high risk of long-term conditions. But like I said, long-term conditions didn't explain that increased risk of sickness absence.
3: Yeah. And and I guess that speaks partly to the point I was making about the differences within. And if you then even subdivide the African group, for example, further, or even the Caribbean group, you will find even more differences. So I haven't done that sort of research, but what I have observed in in terms of the in-work and the nature of the jobs that people have is that you are now having, my observation from a fairly simple counting up, but would need to be more scientific, is that people of African origin and Guyanese origin are doing the well and most senior roles in this country. So if you look at the MPs, for example, members of parliament, if you look at um, senior roles in, in private sector organisations and indeed in public sector, that you will have a higher number of people of African and Guyanese origin. And there might be others, and it's just what... So, so once you start noticing, you start noticing, I guess... And an organisation I'm involved with, the AMOS Bursary, which seeks to uh, support young black males from not from advantaged backgrounds. So we've been to comprehensive schools. This was state educated, essentially. It came to be that for quite a period of time, and I think they're possibly trying to look at that now, is that the the people who were selected for that were... Almost were so predominantly African. So there was such a high rate of almost every, one after the other. There African names, even though they'd grown up in similar circumstances, of on a difficult estates and in schools that were not did not necessarily have uh, high proportions of people going to university and so on. And the purpose of that uh, bursary is to support the people to go to Russell Group universities. And most of them do come out and they get jobs. A lot of them are coming out and getting jobs. 50 grand as their first job and so on. So it's a very successful scheme. They've got impact reports and so on, but disproportionately African. So again, so I think that this theme of, and, and I, I don't know whether, sometimes I think we as as Black people tend to not want to focus on these distinctions, but I feel that if we're really to understand and what is going on and be serious about tackling the issues, we kind of have to go there. We have to go there and and that shouldn't be divisive. It should be in genuine pursuit of an understanding of what. And you can, one can begin to imagine why it might be the case, because I think there is something about the psychology and the roots of, of slavery and so on that do play out in these outcomes. And that part of us understanding begins to force us to better confront the underpinnings, which also impact mental health, really. So so, what is it about a second-generation African that would still lead to them doing better or having less sickness absence? Why, why would that be the case?
0: I think the um, first thing that comes to mind, I totally agree, the first thing is where's the research? Who's looking at that? Because clearly we need to try and understand it. But from... Uh, Caribbean perspective, the first thing I tend to go straight to practicalities, you know, for example, around, state in SLAM, I know that so it's a large employer in, in, in South London, that there's a disproportionate number of, of Black people who are, who are subject to discipline procedures. And in my working experience, that's usually one of the first weeks to long-term sickness absence. So, you know, again, why, why is that? And it would be interesting to, to see the data around the differences of those people. Are they you know, larger Caribbean or are they, you know? And I take your point about kind of historical trauma and its impact. I think that's really not been looked into sufficiently. And so that is a real need for, for more um, for more, more research in that area. But my first thought when you were saying those numbers, there was just I still is that thing about the impact on mental health i find it quite distressing and what you said the numbers you know that i think it's come through i find it quite personally quite distressing to hear it and I
5: just,
0: it's just another kind of blow so yeah it impacts
5: us i just wanted to add so in the work i've done i haven't been able to look at migration and the impact of, of recency of migration on people's outcomes and i think that's a really important thing to look at within these groups I think particularly because there was some research done recently in South London that found that within the African group, people who migrated more recently to the UK were actually healthier than people who'd who'd been in the UK for longer, for instance. So it's really important work that we need to do to kind of unpick these things and understand them better. But I think what you just said about the impact of hearing these things as well is really, really important. And I suppose that also, to me, speaks to the need to understand it better because if we don't understand what we're saying, I don't know, and we group everything together, I think the impact can be particularly hard to respond to and to know how to make sense of and particularly overwhelming. I don't know if that's just a, an observation. I don't know. but
0: Also, the, the way that change comes is, is by producing that information, this evidence. You know, most people say, well, yeah, that sounds, I might have an idea of why this might be. But when you produce the evidence, then you can actually
4: say, here it is, what are we going to do about it? if I might just link briefly what Sarah said and what Leila said, uh, and perhaps say it more plainly, that there is somewhat of a hypothesis in the Black community, which is that by the time you migrate to the UK and you start to suffer from the oppression in this country, within a couple of years or a generation, you'll be finished. And this is kind of what some of these differences between Black Africans and Caribbeans may be, right? If you come from an African country where the president is Black, all the doctors are Black, all the teachers are Black, everyone in every high power power position everywhere is Black. There's no reason why you would assume that you could not be in any one of those positions. But once you transition to the UK and you start to recognise that actually this is probably not a meritocracy and um, you'll face significant barriers to trying to attain your goals in life, those do start to weigh on people and come out in mental health outcomes, sickness, absences, and so on. And the Caribbean population in the UK has been here largely, you know, since the 40s. So some of the differences we see are because of long run oppression that community has faced whilst propping up all of the public services in this country and so on. But back to the question about COVID, that is partly why we see these differential outcomes in COVID-19, because it is still largely the Caribbean community and Africans who have migrated here who prop up public services in the United Kingdom, including in the NHS, including on the transport system, as they have been doing since the 40s, really. I don't know if there's any research that, that would substantiate that claim. I think that's a good point. I would actually go further, Celestin, and say that
3: yes, the experience of oppression within the UK and in America or wherever, it would be my hypothesis for the significant part of the problem. But I would actually say also the psychology of a long history and of slavery. So that, and I think that one of the things that the Africans um, have um, managed to do is to let themselves off the hook on the issue of slavery. And I think that that is partly why we can remain... Uh, psychologically apparently more stable whereas if we did confront the reality for our uh, relatives that are uh, 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 are scattered here and there that I think we would have some of the similar issues so I do think that there is an even deeper and longer psychological issue for for the different communities and I think that what Ghana has done in terms of saying to people, if you're an African-American or African from anywhere, you can come and be at home. I think is for me, one. I've always thought that from eight decades I've thought, why can't we just, even if people don't want to come back, that acknowledgement that this is your original home and if you want to come back, you can. I think that the psychological effect would be, for me, that's a hypothesis. I think it would be significant to be honest and I don't know why, I personally feel it very strongly and I don't know why I feel this so strongly, this issue of, well, I, I feel that I personally do carry a, a sense of responsibility and guilt, actually. Um, but most Africans I know don't feel that at all. So I'm going to
2: move this on, we're going to talk a bit more about research and data and lack of in a minute. But before I do that, I just wanted to, to ask you to speak a bit more about the work that you do at Black Thrive, particularly around employment and health
3: yeah so listen off you go <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah so at black Five, we have an employment project which is funded by uh guys and st thomas's charity which is looking uh, specifically at black people's employment and long-term health conditions so it's kind of the interplay between health and race for black people and what we know and what's been kind of mentioned already really but what we know is that Black people suffer worse employment outcomes um, than their white counterparts, and they also disproportionately suffer with long-term health conditions. Having said that, good employment, good quality employment, can be a protective factor in terms of in terms of health. So, having a good job and a good income can in, can improve your health. Vice versa, not having a job or having a bad job can have an adverse effect on your health. And so, our project really is seeking to influence systems change in Lambeth for black people with long-term health conditions to improve their employment outcomes such that black people with long-term conditions are no less likely to have employment than equivalent white folks. Um, so that would be a kind of system of equality, essentially, in terms of employment outcomes. Um, as part of that project, we have a £300,000 pot of funding, which working group of community members decide Where that funding goes. So it's not our decision where to spend the money. We get people with with, with lived experience um, from Lambeth. We talk about issues of system change and how this funding could be used to influence the available support in Lambeth. And those uh, community working group members ultimately make the decision on where that money goes. So, so that's the project in a nutshell. It is a kind of action research project. So, um, Yasmin and I are doing kind of some research stuff behind the scenes, as well as trying to influence the key players in Lambeth. And Catherine can talk to this, but um, Catherine's a member of that working group. I only realized today, Catherine, that you've got a background in procurement, and procurement is becoming one of the key levers for change in terms of this project, as well as talking to large local employers about their own role as large local employers who can provide employment for people, particularly in a context where we are in the deepest recession of all time. We've seen recently the lowest number of available jobs of all time. Um, And so we really do have to think clearly about where employment can come from for people who might be uh you know because the discourse is about being further from the job market i don't know i don't know whether the employers are further from them or they're further from the employers but that's like a kind of another question but yeah so that's the other employment project in a nutshell
3: can i just add to that although you kind of alluded to it celestine that, that we in addition to people who are not in work we're very much thinking about people who are are in work so we want uh, equally to focus on the nature of the experiences of black people with long-term health conditions in work. So hence, uh, Sarah, your research being particularly useful. So black people with long-term conditions who are in work and what their um, experiences are and the extent to which they end up losing their jobs because of their health condition and how that might be stopped. So in a sense, there's no point keeping on trying to fill, fill the bath when the plug hole is open. And also, so creating the conditions systemically for people when they go into the world of work or into a particular employment, they have had a positive experience, they receive the right support. Recently, we did a survey, uh, or uh, good people who are one of our partners did a survey to find that the majority, something like 60 to 70% of employers, haven't even heard about access to work, which is a d- Department for Work and Pensions scheme to support people with health conditions and who are disabled to work and there's resource available to support people and most employers don't know about it and even those that do may not be bothered to use it so there is something at a a macro level about why would this is back to systemic issues why would it be that people don't know That is, to me, a systemic issue. Just the fact of the knowledge is a systemic problem and a challenge. Um, Never mind when they do know how easy is it to get hold of that resource and use it for the benefit of the particular employee. Do the employees know what they're entitled to? Uh, How does the occupational health system work? Again, in my experience, occupational health is often used by organisations as a move to remove people from the workplace It is not used to understand the nature of their condition and how adaptations might enable them to work in the same job or to slightly change the job that they do. So it's not used effectively. And and I think that's not necessarily the fault of occupational health as a profession, because having spoken to some occupational health people, they're quite keen to do the job for which they were trained, but it's used by organisations and institutions and managers to basically get rid of people sooner than later. And then what you have there is that people then, because of that, don't um, disclose that they have a health condition or a disability, which then means that they then are not entitled to the support and you've got a basically bad system going there. And and it affects white people too, of course, but from what we've been saying, what you've said, Sarah, what Selison has said, because black people are disproportionately Ill and disproportionately in jobs where uh, support is less likely, the sig- the impact on them is is so much worse.
2: So um, you've mentioned about the working group decide- deciding how the money that you have is spent, and you've also mentioned the fact that you are you are sort of using levers up to the sort of organisations who are involved in employment. I just wondered, could you say anything more about that, or or, or other aspects of your approach that you think is Different from the status quo.
1: I think having the the community the community working group as the fund as the grant givers is potentially one of the most radical aspects of the project. The fact that we're really prioritising the sense of lived experience being at the core of the people who should make the decisions. The people who have lived experience of this system that's not working for them, or for their family members, or for people that they know, should be the ones that make the decision on how to reform. Um, or the solutions that are going to change the system, and I think in I guess traditional funding spaces, often funding is very top down, mostly from middle class white men who don't have as wide a range of lived experience of some of the issues that they are look- that they may be funding, and therefore don't you know necessarily know if this solution is going to create the outcomes that it says that it will. So I think for me, that's that's one of the things that really excites me about the project, and and I think is quite radical having having. The dis- how decisions are made and who the decisions are made by?
0: Um, as a kind of lived experience person on that um, working group, I, I also think that's really important. But also, I'm really pleased by the fact that Black Thrive um, knows that it doesn't have all the answers, even though it's trying to uh, have the community at the centre of, of this decision making process. No group of a dozen people can say they truly represent the community. So the work being done um, through community research is to reach out to more wider section of the community, I think is really critically important. How successful or, you know, not as successful as we might like to be in that? I think it has to always be very transparent and a um, statement of fact that, yeah, we're doing our best with the knowledge that we have, but we're very conscious that we can't represent everybody and this is what we're trying to do and it will be a continuous process to make sure that we reach as many voices as possible for me i
3: think that's really important yeah i, I t- totally agree and i think that the community i think community research is a, a really important aspect and i think we're learning as we go so if we all all of us had to do this again we would probably do things a bit differently but that part of the point is to learn not just about the what but the how how do you get the voice of the wider community into the space and as part of the at the heart of the change? And how do you um, generate for all of us? We're we're constrained by uh, the prevailing patterns of structural racism and arrangements that are in place. So how do we actually generate some thinking? departs from what has been before so what where how do we find new angles to tackle some of these issues i think is so crucial
2: we talked a bit about research and data and evidence and lack of and ability to disaggregate within and between groups. In our work, we've heard how Black people can be tired of telling their story without change. They can um, feel mistrustful of research and they may not want to get involved in research. Can you say any more about this and other challenges for for research in this area? Um, Obviously, academic institutions are not separate from these structural systems which which we live in they're part of those systems and um, systemic racism is manifest in academic institutions as well. And so if you just have, could have any thoughts around how that might influence representation and underrepresentation in
0: research.
4: A couple of things come to mind and come together when I'm thinking about this. One is about who is allowed to ask the questions first of all. And so people inside academia know there's a kind of hierarchy of academic institutions some of them do lots of research some of them do lots of teaching so you get your russell group universities your king's colleges your lse's your oxford's your cambridge's these are kind of research intensive institutions and in those research intensive institutions even though you are not likely to find a black professor in any case you are much less likely to find a black professor in any of those institutions so that's kind of start of the problem right there's not really senior black folk around in these research institutions. And there are not really that many black PhD students coming through. And in some senses, you can't critique someone for not doing something they're not trying to do. So if you're not trying to, if you don't care about race, if you're not trying to do research on race, then no one can critique you for not doing it. But there is something about thinking through equality and diversity within academia itself which is a which is a major problem and i think if other parts of the public sector if you can call a university a public sector organization other parts of the public sector had this level of inequality in race in terms of its hierarchy it would be front page news but for some reason it doesn't really seem to be problematic inside universities, although there are lots of people doing lots of different work inside universities to try and make something up. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is, when we're talking about who is participating in research, I think the thing of Black people not wanting to participate or not participating is is uh, it lacks evidence. I'm not sure it's the case that Black people don't want to participate in research. I, I'm i more worrying that people haven't bothered to ask. So Yasmin and I are right in the systematic literature review at the moment it's on so so as sarah's rightly said and everyone else has rightly said there are lots of inequalities in terms of health and employment for black people so you would assume since those inequalities are so stark and so obvious and have been known for so many years that people would have done some research on what works to get people these black people who are so worse off in in this field what works to get them into work yes and i've done a systematic literature review that there were basically a thousand papers in scope for the review. We've written the review now, or most of it, and there's only five papers. So so that that's telling you a story. So when, when people say black people have not participated in research or they don't want to participate in research, it's like, are you sure? Have you asked? Have you tried? Because uh, I'm not sure people have been necessarily tried. But obviously, of course, there are issues with, with access. In my discipline, which is social psychology, the vast majority of participants in any research are students. And so... There are calls within the academic world to kind of diversify samples away from student populations, but we also need to think about the question of who is most impacted by whatever this research is. Should mostly be part of the sample, surely, right? We have to. If we say that we're interested in racial disparities in health, then surely the participants have to be black people, and you just have to you just have to find a way. And I think it's not it's not too much to ask the people who are in charge of producing new knowledge in the society to find the people that are of interest to their research.
5: I totally agree with what you've just said. And I, I guess I'd go one step further and, and say that what, what what's being done at Black Thrive at the moment, I think, also needs to be a part of the way research is done. So not only do Black people need to be sampled adequately when, when these questions are being asked, but they also, Black communities need to be involved in the creation and the design of The research that's being done and the framing of the questions, and I guess I've I've had the impression that people are are a bit fed up of telling their story, and that they that it often feels like it's not heard or nothing happens with it, and it doesn't go anywhere. And so, I suppose if 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 there's more co-production, one would hope that the questions would be framed in a way that was more meaningful, and then the results could be communicated to influence policy in a way that was also meaningful for for populations.
0: I think part of the problem there, certainly for institutions, say so for example, kind of SLAM, in my experience, is that they'll set up a system, say like the involvement register, where people like me can, who want to make a contribution can join. And it's a horrendously complex, it takes eight months to actually get on, on the list. And then when opportunities are sent out for, for people to take up, um, there's also the complaint that it's exactly the same people who get the work. So, and every meeting you go to, you see the same basis, you know? And so it's that, again, it comes back to this kind of, I would say, laziness in terms of approach. This is what we do. And there's nobody thinking that that thing is. how do we get a more uh, realistic sample? you know, like the, the peer researchers and, just a more imaginative way of broadening the field. Because of course, if you keep going to the same people, of course they're going to be bored, fed up, you know, yet another another survey and what happened to the last one, you know, so um yeah, so I think you just the teachers have to be more imaginative and use co-production in much in a much wider sense than
4: they understand it at the moment. I suppose there is something about within health institutions doing their own research or surveying of people and, and so on. And I suppose there probably is a huge and Catherine a little bit than me, but I I do get the sense that there is a huge amount of user satisfaction surveys and user satisfaction interviews and so on, which are which are essentially ticking boxes. But there is a difference between that and academic research, I suppose, and and even policy research, which is which is focused on changing something. And I think there is a sense of services Doing kind of user engagement, user involvement just for user engagement's sake, which I think is which I think is highly problematic. Because of course, people will feel as though if I've told you this, you're now going to do something when that is not the intention actually to do anything. So yeah, there is a sense that there needs to be some more partnership at that level of direct service delivery and your academic institutions or your community organisations who are involved in um, trying to create to create change.
5: I guess also just to add, um, so using resources like GP records, which have available data, no one has to tell their story. The data is there, and going in and asking the right questions of that data is really powerful in backing up people's stories and kind of ra- you know making them making policy people listen mm-hmm. to those stories.
4: I think that's really important. There is a huge amount of secondary data that is available, but there are questions about who it's available to, how people are able to access it, uh, and so on. So at Black Pride, we have struggled, actually, to get secondary data that we know exists, and we also face, and this is another way in which uh, racism rears its head, we also face challenges when we, when we we when, when people know that we are interested in the experiences of Black people, they are reticent to give the data up, because they almost... It's, no one has said this, but my feeling is that it is, we, we don't want anyone to know Agreed. just how bad it is for black people. Absolutely. Uh, and Lena has spent, yep. well, I'm going to say years, actually. Yeah. <laughs> <More> <laughs> they,
3: they, than, they, yeah, people are resistant to providing the information even when it's there. It is quite shocking. And for me, that's one of the pillars of racism, actually, mm-hmm. is, that, is that why do you think you can hide the reality of what's going on? You know, why are you
4: a gatekeeper for this information? It's quite hard. I suppose a kind of side project, not really a side project, actually, because it's actually, it would actually create some serious system change, is to get some of the key public sector players in Lambeth to, you know, get with the times, make your data publicly available, open source, anyone can access it, just anonymize it and and let people, your citizen scientists, your peer researchers, whoever, access it and do what they want with it. At the end of the day it's not your secret to keep if that makes sense is, is kind of what I've been trying to say to people uh, and yeah I think we need more of that particularly in the public sector which is like very far behind you know coming out of academia the public sector is very far behind the times everyone's working on a excel spreadsheet with all kinds of strange colors in it and just mad really I'm just going to
2: finish just with a very brief question saying we've talked about the absolute fundamental importance of us um, facing up to our history and being able to talk more openly about racial and ethnic inequalities in our country. We've talked about the importance of evidence and data and engaging with people and having sort of an openness to that data as well. And we've talked about the importance of involving people with lived experience and um, sort of from a bottom up sort of place, but also top down sort of institutionally and organisationally getting people involved who have actually the power to make decisions and make change. I guess as a very sort of final brief question, as a kind of call to action, what of those or any other domains would you think is sort of most important going forward in order to start making those systemic changes that you are working for in your practice, in your work with Black Thrive and in your research?
3: I don't know that I would point to any of the, those particular things. I, my, If I was going to say what's the one, if I had a, a magic wand or a superpowers or whatever, the one change that I would make would be to education. Yeah, I would completely agree with that. And, and that would be about in-building from a very young age into all children that would also impact black children, a sense of validity to to their existence and a sense of mattering and a sense of equality and so on. So that is the thing that I would do, but I would also then follow that right through so that as you get older, this education about what actually has gone on in society, how this... So there's something about truth telling and truth education. That I think, speaking of truth and reconciliation, I think that is the only hope of any kind of, the truth is the only hope of any kind of reconciliation, in my opinion.
1: I, I completely agree in terms of the foundations being in education, and on top of what you've just said, Leila, I'd say upskilling people with, whether it's confidence, with the skills to be able to critique the systems that we exist within, and to ask questions and to challenge and even though it's hard and how we've been you know fighting to get data and fighting to get access and fighting to get you know to get certain informational knowledge that that not everyone not everyone feels that they can do that and I think from a young age to to kind of get that sense that you can ask questions you can send emails try and get in touch with people and and try and figure things out and I don't know if, if I think maybe some young people feel that they can, but that's not something that everyone feels entitled to, entitled to. And I certainly think that the way that we educate young people currently doesn't equip them all equally with that skill to think critically and to feel that they can challenge the systems that we that we exist within. That, so I completely agree.
5: I totally agree. And I'd extend that, I think, to specifically saying, I think if I could wave a magic wand, <laughs> then for white people to to acknowledge and accept the reality of, their power and privilege. And I think that's a part of this need to shift education and also to shift people's awareness about their own, um, their own role in the system. And I guess the, the lack of acceptance of, of white power and privilege is a major barrier to change within systems, um, within all the systems we've been talking about. And so I guess in order to tackle the issues we've been talking about, I feel like that increase in awareness and acceptance and, and also curiosity about it is essential and change.
1: and the ability to to understand that that these things are complicated that the, the narrative cannot be simplified that it, it's not that, that these things are complex our history is complex the current society that we live in is complex and that we have to kind of welcome that complexity with open arms and think like this is the, and try to understand it rather than just take the easier route of sound bites and 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 simplified narratives of of the systems and society that we live in. I'd agree
0: with, with the education bit, I think, it's absolutely right, but that's kind of down the line. It's also the now, how we're going to try and influence things now and make change. So I think that we could, absolutely, what um, Sarah said about the, the white people with suspicious power being able to make those changes if they want to, right, because it's, it's a choice. And there are organisations we need to kind of be maybe looking outside of the public sector, for organisations who are willing to actually look at them, look in the mirror and try and make those changes. And I don't know how real it is because I'm not involved in them directly, but one of I think I circulated the Royal Court Theatre's approach and it, whether they're successful or not, I thought it was a really, it's probably an organisation worth keeping an, an, an eye on to see are they really going to make those changes because they are looking in the mirror and saying absolutely we accept that whole construct of, of white supremacy all of what we do and we're going to try and break it down but we're going to do it in partnership. and that's quite a scary thing to do and that's why most people don't want to do it. but that level of honesty and openness that I think needs to be at the top of every institution. if we're going to get any change in the meantime I will try and fix how we educate people and to give them confidence to make that change. Right. Thank you. Bye. Thanks very
2: much, everyone. Thank you. Bye.
0: Bye. Bye.